This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Anna North, author of the novel Outlawed. I didn't want the book to make this like super simple, you know, correlation between religion and hatred or bigotry. Like I didn't want the book to send the message that like, oh, these people you know, hate infertile people because of their religion. And it's because they're religious people that they ostracize infertile women. And like, if we just got rid of religion in this world, then there would be no stigma. We'll be back with Anna North in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Anna North, who is an author and journalist. Her novels include America Pacifica, The Life and Death of Sophie Stark, and Outlawed. She's a senior reporter at Vox and focuses her journalism on reproductive health and politics. She has worked as a writer and editor at The New York Times, BuzzFeed, Jezebel, and Salon. Her novel Outlawed takes place in 1894 in what is now the Western United States and tells the story of 17-year-old Ada, who is in a happy marriage but is unable to conceive a child. Her barrenness puts her life at risk in her community, as wives who cannot get pregnant were often hanged as witches and blamed for the barrenness of other women. After a brief foray at a nunnery, Ada joins a notorious gang called Hole in the Wall Gang, where she finds relative safety and a place to contemplate her fate in life. We began the interview with Anna North sharing what inspired her to write Outlawed. I was traveling with some friends. We were actually in New Hampshire, and um, we visited a Shaker dwelling, um, which, you know, the Shakers were sort of a separatist religious sect, you know, operating a lot in the 19th century. Um, 
and they lived communally together. They're very famous for their buildings and for their their furniture making and their crafts. And they also were celibate and they didn't have children. Um, and they would sort of live together communally, but they wouldn't they wouldn't marry and they wouldn't they wouldn't reproduce. Um, and so I was just really interested in this beautiful building and sort of in learning about the Shakers. Um, and they just kind of stuck with me and the, the sort of beautiful place out in the woods kind of stuck with me. Um, and it was also, I should say, a time when you know, I was fairly, I think, fairly recently married. And my husband and I are sort of talk, talking about whether we would have children. So, you know, these ideas of kind of childbirth and child rearing and reproduction were on my mind. Um, and I sort of started writing these stories and sort of disjointed fragments about um, a group of people that were living separate from mainstream society and they don't have children or in some of the drafts they can't have children and there are various reasons why. And I was sort of sending them to my writing group and everyone was like a little bit confused. Um, they weren't really coming together. Um, but I sort of started thinking about, well, you know, who else lives out, you know, in the woods separate from the mainstream beyond, you know, the Shakers or, or some some religious groups, you know, outlaws do that, right? Um, outlaws lived, I mean, you know, real life outlaws would live in outlaw camps, live in hideouts, you know, and lead these lives that were separate from sort of the mores and traditions of more ordinary people. So I started thinking about that and I started thinking about Westerns. And as soon as I sort of started thinking about the book as a Western, then it sort of opened out. And I think part of it, honestly, is that I just have trouble writing like the landscapes of the East Coast. I've lived here. I've lived in New York now for 10 years, um, but I'm from California. And I think as soon as I kind of, you know, moved the story West, that's like when it opened out for me. That's so interesting. What do you think that's about? You know, I think it's really sort of, um, to some degree, it's about like the richness of landscapes that I can imagine. So, I mean, for me, you know, I've set, I've set fiction in New York and in a variety of places um, before and obviously in sort of imagined worlds that aren't real. But in some ways, like if I need something to be really like rich and beautiful and about setting, it feels like it still almost has to be in the West. Um, it feels like I haven't spent enough time, you know, here in New York or in on the East Coast generally to like have it really get in my bones and to have this really like visceral you know, understanding of what the landscape is like. I mean, I hope that changes because I don't want to like only be able to write about one place forever. But I think maybe especially for this book, it's like I knew this was going to be so much about place and so much about the land. And, you know, for some reason, there was only like one part of the country that could really work for that. And what about Westerns? Did you have much experience with Westerns or have a love for it? Or was it just an iconic thing for you? So it's funny. I hadn't read a ton of, you know, sort of what you think about as traditional Westerns. I hadn't read a lot of Cormac McCarthy or, you know, sort of like the earlier works that he's responding to. And I actually, as soon as I started, as soon as I knew that I was writing a Western, I really banned myself from reading any, um, you know, sort of conventional Western stories or even from watching Western TV. Like I wouldn't watch Deadwood until I was totally done with the project. Um, but I'd been reading a lot of things that, and we can talk about this more, but I'd been reading a lot of things that sort of were, you know, Western adjacent or, you know, aren't thought of as Westerns, but have this Western element. Um, one thing I'd been reading a lot of was Crazy Cat. So these are newspaper comics from the 1910s, 1920s. Um, you know, they're, for people who really love newspaper comics, they're famous. Um, you know, the art is really famous and they're basically about um, a cartoon cat 
who is in love with a cartoon mouse. The mouse does not love the cat back and uh, throws bricks at his head a lot. So that makes it sound like it's very basic and it is in certain ways, but it's also really ahead of its time. Um, the cat uh, uses different pronouns at different times. And this was like very important to the creator of the strip, George Harriman. Um, and it's also kind of a Western. So it's set in Coconino County um, in Arizona. Um, you know, you sort of see red rock formations in the background. There's a sheriff named Officer Pup, um, you know, and so it's it's not like, you know, your canonical Western story exactly, but it is a Western in this funny way. And it's also something that plays with gender and sexuality um, in these ways that were, you know, really kind of groundbreaking for the time. Um, so I think funnily enough, Crazy Cat was sort of like my way into seeing the West as, you know, sort of a quote unquote frontier space for gender and sexuality. Um, obviously, like the idea of a frontier is problematic and all these other ways that we can talk about. Um, but in some ways, that was my opening to thinking about like, well, what can a Western be that's not just kind of a shoot 'em up, if that makes sense. That's so interesting. How did you alight upon that? I had been a fan of Crazy Cat for a long time. Um, I mean, my dad is a fan of Crazy Cat. I think my grandpa even liked Crazy Cat. Um, I remember, like, long before starting on this project, going to an exhibition of, like, panels from Crazy Cat at a museum in L.A. You know, yeah, so I'd just been into it for a long time. It's not like... I feel like when I bring it up, a lot of people haven't necessarily heard of it, but within sort of, like, if you follow, like, the history of, like, cartoons, like, people definitely know it. And why was um, gender and and gender fluidity and issues of pronouns important for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, these have always been issues that interest me. Um, You know, I actually like in my journalistic work, um, I focused a lot on gender. Um, You know, I'm sort of um, during the pandemic, I've changed my beat a little bit um, at my job at Vox. um, But I I was hired as the quote unquote gender reporter. Um, And it's always very funny because like, what does it mean to be a gender reporter? You know, what would it mean to be an expert on gender? That's such a broad concept as to almost be useless. Um, But I have always been interested in the ways I think that people are marginalized on the basis of their gender or on the basis of what people perceive to be their gender. Um, You know, and also the ways that people have performed their gender, Um, you know, the ways that they have have sort of constructed their gender for themselves and others in their communities and and around them. And so that was something that sort of like fed naturally into the story, you know, especially because I knew that to some degree this was going to be a story about fertility and infertility and reproduction. I knew that from early on. And those concepts are so intimately tied up with gender. I mean, um, you know, in ways in the current United States that can be damaging, right? So, you know, if you are assigned female at birth, there's all this pressure to decide about whether or not you're going to have a child and you don't always get to decide it for yourself. Um, You know, but so I think um, the issues that I wanted to deal with in the book, they just were all really intimately tied up with gender and, um, you know, with gender-based oppression, but also um, sort of with kind of self-constructed gender identity. So when you started writing these, these short, short stories and fragments, was Ada in them? And so Ada is your main character. She is a young woman living in the West. I think it's Wyoming. 
Yeah, so she grows up in, um, I mean, the, the states don't exist anymore. Um, so she grows up in what would now be like the Dakotas. Um, and then most of the action of the book takes, takes place in what would now be Wyoming. So Ada is precocious and intelligent. She, her mother is a, is a midwife and she has much younger sibling and she gets married she had really good friends. She gets married. She likes her husband, but then she can't conceive. And that is pretty much in their society. One of the worst things that can happen It's not just that you can't conceive. You can be deemed a witch. Your non-conception could have ripple effects within your community and, and people can blame you for other people who have miscarriages. And you're basically sent away from your marriages, you can sometimes be be hanged. And this is the fate that she had in your book. So tell me a little bit about Ada's genesis for you. Definitely the character of Ada came to me early. I think I wasn't sure, um, you know, necessarily like what kind of a person she would be exactly. But I knew that I wanted to have, um, you know, this person be the point of view character, someone who was dealing with infertility in this world where infertility is, as you say, so deeply stigmatized. And then as I sort of worked on it a little more, like her family situation also came to me really early. The idea of her mom being a midwife um, and of her siblings, um, you know, so in this world, women are really valued based on how many children they can have. So Ada's mother has four children. And so that kind of gives her high status. She's also a midwife. So she's in charge of bringing children into the world. So for all these reasons, she has a lot of social power in in her own way. Um, and for instance, she is not like really pressured to marry again after her second marriage breaks up. You know, she has certain freedoms within this world that not all women have. I wanted that to be really clear. And then for Ada, you know, as I sort of went along, I sort of felt like I understood more what her motivations were. Like in early drafts, it was really just like, okay, she's not able to have children. That's incredibly dangerous in this world. What's she gonna do to save herself? And then over time, I thought more about what kind of a person is Ada? You know, what does she want beyond just not being hanged as a witch? And that's when I kind of thought more about, you know, her own desire for medical knowledge. Like she, you know, when she's um, when she's growing up, she's apprenticing to her mother and she's supposed to become a midwife. And it seems like that's not going to be able to happen because she's infertile. And so no one would, you know, no one would trust her. They would barely allow her to live, let alone let her deliver babies. You know, but over time, she meets the whole in the wall gang and sort of like goes along on her journey. She is able to use her medical skills more. And she really has this thirst for knowledge where she wants to understand, you know, why is she infertile? Why are other people infertile? And what can she do with that knowledge to sort of lessen the stigma that she and others are experiencing? I think that's really the key for her and, you know, animates a lot of her journey. Yeah, I mean, she's she's certainly not alone in being castigated from her community. That's what happened to women her age and in her situation in, in your novel. And they could have been hanged, as I mentioned, their family was at threat too. It could could have been that their family would also be shut out or, or potentially also murdered. And so a lot of these women, the solution is to send them to convents. And that's something where that was kind of a way station for her. And it was really a preservation effort by her mother to keep her alive and to keep her family alive. 
Right. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, that, you know, to some degree has basis in historical reality also. I mean, um, you know, other folks have asked me about this, like um, sort of about the historical basis for for some of the book. And, um, you know, it's not the case. So this is an alternate history. It's set in 1894, but it's not like our 1894. And, you know, we can say that, you know, this doesn't give too much away because I think it's revealed on like the first page that this is a story that takes place in the aftermath of a flu pandemic. So in the world of the book, in 1830, there's a terrible flu pandemic that basically takes down the government of the United States and all the state governments. Now, there actually was a flu pandemic in 1830 that swept across the world. Obviously, it didn't destroy the U.S., Um, you know, so I I picked like a sort of real inflection point where, um, you know, our real history diverges from the history of my book. So in the book, the U.S. ceases to exist. And there's been this terrible pandemic that has, you know, killed like 90 percent of the U.S. population. Um, And to some degree, that's why people become so obsessed with reproduction, because there's just there becomes this cultural value on replacing those who have died and also on the sort of, um, you know, the hope that can come from having new children and new life. Um, And so that's kind of, um, you know, that's where these obsessions come in, you know, but of course, it's true that like women have throughout history been stigmatized for infertility in various ways. And, you know, even looking back at like the Salem witch trials, while those weren't necessarily about infertility, they were, you know, often about sort of responding to a perceived sexual impropriety on the part of women. So women doing something wrong with their sexuality, doing something wrong with their bodies, you know, doing something wrong with their reproductive capacity. That's always been, you know, an excuse for sending women away or doing bad things to them. So that was all sort of had a basis in fact. And then the decision to send Ada to the convent, that had a basis in history too. You know, for for centuries, really, convent in Europe were places where you could kind of send your problematic offspring you know, your daughters that hadn't necessarily been married yet or might not necessarily get married. If there was some sort of shame in the family or some sort of problem, um, convents could almost be, you know, like a like a holding place for people that society didn't otherwise know what to do with. And so I got kind of interested in this idea and also just really wanted to explore the idea of a convent in this book as a place where people are actually doing some resistance, you know, and again, like, I don't, I'm not as familiar with this history as I should be, but I think that's accurate too, that there was kind of political activity sometimes going on in convents and that, you know, nuns could sort of use the the fact that they were literally cloistered from the world as a, a source of like an odd kind of freedom. I want to get back to the life in the convent, but I, I've been thinking as you're talking that you sound a little bit like, for lack of a better term, or to make up a term, like an imaginative breadcrumb writer. And what I mean by that is you started writing these small snippets, and then that sort of brought you to something else, like maybe it brought you to the comic, and then maybe you did a teeny bit of research, and then your imagination went a little further. And it sounds like an interplay between asking what if and looking at what was and then bringing in some of your interests. Is that accurate or could you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, I definitely think that's right. I mean, I think to some degree that's how I've always worked. And I even like look back to being in college and I was an English major and, um, you know, I wrote an honors thesis about uh, actually about Sherlock Holmes, you sort of using um, the Sherlock Holmes stories as a way to look at the act of literary criticism and literary criticism as like a form of detective work. 
And I remember when I was writing that thesis that I, I struggled a lot with trying to organize it because I just sort of wanted to move from like interesting thing to interesting thing. And, you know, luckily I had an advisor who was like sort of all, also interested in that approach and he kind of allowed me to pull together just, you know, a lot of like sort of strange threads and, and try to stitch it together. Um, but in some ways, maybe it works better in fiction than it does in criticism in that, you know, I'm not under as much pressure to like have a cogent argument or, or something that's like true in a literal sense. But I think it's definitely right that, um, you know, my process to such a degree as I have one is sort of, you know, gathering these small things and kind of trying to put them together into a whole. So at the convent, when she was at the convent, many of the girls and women there, almost all of them were in a similar situation. So some were happy with, with being there and some weren't. They were very intelligent. I mean, she actually had chance to read and write when she was there. I mean, she, she got opportunities that she wouldn't have had had she stayed married, but that wasn't enough for her because you're talking about basically she, she had this thirst for knowledge. She, she wanted to know why she was barren, but not in a vindictive way. It's not like she wanted to come back and, and school everyone around her and explain that it isn't witches. It was really for her own edification, her own curiosity, and, and almost like a spiritual quest to make herself more whole. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, definitely in the convent, some of the most fun parts for me to write were when she's in the library and she's, um, you know, she's going through the books. And so I sort of, you know, made up what some of these books would be. But I also tried to research what would have been known about fertility, about people's bodies, about the human reproductive system at that time, and about human anatomy in general, so that I wasn't having her learn stuff that she totally wouldn't have been able to know. Although having it be an alternate history did give me a little bit more freedom there, but I still tried to research this. To some degree, the convent is the place where she is sort of able to refine what does she want to do with herself? She has like a tiny bit of breathing space where she's not in, you know, mortal danger anymore. She's in this place where physically she's safe. And so she's able to sort of start doing a little bit of research and start doing a little bit of thinking about like, how does she actually want to spend her life? And she does want to spend it in pursuit of knowledge. I think it's right that she wants that she wants it in a spiritual sense and she wants it in a sense to kind of, I mean, I feel this strongly myself. There's always a desire for me to make meaning out of experiences and to feel like, okay, I can, I can narrativize this. I mean, I feel this really strongly now during the pandemic, a lot has happened. Um, you know, I mean, my family and I have been so privileged, but for everyone, a lot has happened that has been devastating and trying to like, make meaning out of that. Um, and I'm nowhere near making meaning out of that in a fictional sense, but even just in my own mind, kind of trying to have a narrative, I think that's really important to me. And I think that's important to Ada too. But I do also think she has a social mission um, and her social mission isn't always perfect, right? Like you see at various points in the book, her screwing, screwing her mission up or just like being so committed to the way she thinks is right to do things that she causes problems for people. But I do think she thinks that if she's able to get knowledge and be able to communicate it in the right way, that she will be able to help herself and people like her and really crucially other people like her, other people who are infertile who are, or who have sort of been stigmatized in the society. And I think she's really driven to do that. Even in some cases it goes awry, but I think that's a major part of what drives her. So then the, the major portion of your book is that she ends up 
the convent again isn't enough. She needs to get out and learn more. She needs to go west. She's learned of a doctor that um, is a female who might have some of the answers she's looking for. And kind of a way to get there is she needs money. She needs some support. So she goes off into the wilderness to join this gang called Hole in the Wall. And they're known as outlaws in the, in the classic Western way. They rob banks. They're all women or non-gendered identifying people. Can you talk a little bit about the hole in the wall? And then we can talk a little bit about Kid, the leader. When I was writing about the hole in the wall gang, I did, you know, I mean, you're talking about sort of gathering breadcrumbs again. I, I did take as a jumping off point, the real life hole in the wall gang. So the hole in the wall is a real place. Um, in what is now Wyoming, um, you know, there's there's a hole in the wall valley and there's a real life um, sort of rock formation called the hole in the wall, um, which doesn't look like much actually when you go there. It's kind of just like a notch in the rock wall, but it's a place where if you go up there, then you can really see the whole valley. So it's very advantageous to defend because you could see if somebody is going to come and try to ambush you. Um, and so outlaws would use this as a hideout for many years. And the gang was sort of loosely defined people would come in people would come out um butch cassidy and the sundance kid are probably the most famous sort of core members of the gang um there were a lot of other folks involved um including there were some women so there's a woman named laura bullion who is a little bit of the basis for agnes rose in the book you know but it's mostly men um mostly you know male outlaws thieves and folks who would rob stagecoaches and things like this and, you know, they're the subject of a variety of pop culture, movies, TV, um, all the things that you think of when you think of sort of sort of Westerns and, and outlaw stories. But I sort of wanted to put a twist on this. So, um, you know, I looked at the real life members of the gang and then I decided what I wanted my gang to look like. And as you say, in most cases, they're women. Um, the kid is not. Um, the kid doesn't use pronouns. Um, the, as, as it says at one part in the book, um, the kid is just the kid. But Otherwise, they're mostly women and mostly they've been, you know, sort of like the title says, they've been outlawed. Right. So they're not they didn't necessarily join up with the gang because they are career criminals. They joined up with the gang because they are infertile um, or in some cases because they're biracial. And that's really stigmatized um, in some sectors of this world, um, you know, sort of because um because there's a form of eugenics that has sprung up in in this sort of obsession with reproduction. Um, and so it's become, you know, it's a it's a gang and it's a hideout, but it's also it's really a haven, um, you know, for people, again, mostly women who have sort of been outcast by this repressive society. You know, so there's elements of like the real life outlaw gang and they definitely do crimes like they, you know, in order to stay alive and survive, they they survive by thieving you know, the sort of their, their motivation and their reason for being there are a little bit different. And it was such a, um, a potent way to, to explore these issues of gender, race, religion, and eugenics, because for fiction, you get this small community of people that are set aside from society. So it's a, it's kind of like a great literary device to, go deeper into some of these issues because you're so focused on the individuals in the community and then the ways that they, we already know that they're not a part of society and then how they rub up against society when they enter it, either to stake something out or to actually do a crime. 
And I don't know if you consciously thought about that, but do you feel like that really helped you by creating a group of people who were isolated to go deeper into some of those topics? Or was that more just like an after effect that was pleasant? I mean, maybe a little bit more of an after effect, but something that I did think about a lot was the kind of society that they create there sort of in their in their isolation. Um, you know, so something I thought about a lot when I was writing this book is that I didn't want to write another dystopia. So my first novel, America Pacifica, is a dystopia, and I really had a lot of fun writing that. It's, um, you know, it's sort of cli-fi, climate fiction, but I didn't want to write another book like that. I think especially now, the, I, I wrote this before the pandemic, but even before that, the world was like dystopian enough. I didn't feel like I wanted my appetite for dystopia has become less and less over the years. And so it's not like the book is a utopia either. Obviously, like it describes a society that's very bad for a lot of people. Um, but I did want to put within that this like society within a society that's the whole in the wall gang that like really offers a lot of freedom and a lot of joy and, um, you know, a really sort of, a sort of chosen family and people that work together and care for each other. And they obviously have a lot of problems and they fight and, you know, the kids' plans are not always the best plans. Um, and Ada makes some mistakes, but, um, but part of what I wanted to do was really show, you know, this group of people kind of creating their own society that, actually in a lot of ways, like could be something to aspire to. Kid is the leader. Kid is, as we mentioned, non-gendered. The kid, it has terrible insomnia. The kid's father, I believe, was a preacher. And Mm -hmm. the kid is, is very religious, has a lot of religious language, a lot of sort of symbolism of you know, bringing people into into more of a utopia in the language the kid uses. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the kid was one of the hardest characters for me to figure out, you know, because I had some ideas early on about what I wanted the kid to be like. But in terms of just like creating a full, well-rounded character, that took me a lot of time. And I think one thing is that I wanted... I really wanted the kid to be an effective leader. You know, like the kid really brings the gang together and really holds them together at difficult times. But, um, you know, the kid's also not a perfect leader by any stretch of the imagination. Again, like the kid's, you know, big plan at the end of the book, like has a lot of flaws in it, has a lot of problems. Like I sort of, I don't necessarily think of the kid as like the strategy brains behind the gang. Like, but I think the kid is the gang's sort of spiritual center and kind of keeps them whole. And One thing that like really came, I think, as I was writing the book was this idea that um, the kid has really forged this really strong personal relationship with each of the members of the gang and, and almost like giving them a reason to live, giving them a reason to fight, you know, really like finding what speaks to them and, you know, sort of nourishing them in a real way. And I wanted to highlight that because I think when we see stories of powerful leaders, especially maybe in a Western or in this sort of more shoot 'em up or adventure genre, we don't necessarily see like one of their leadership attributes being that they have this really strong interpersonal ability to speak to people on an individual level. I do think that's a really important quality that some leaders have that I wanted to bring out. And I wanted to be clear too, that the kid has a lot of personal stuff that the kid is dealing with. I mean, you talk about the kid's insomnia. Um, The kid also has mental health issues that the kid deals with later on in the book. 
And when that stuff comes up, I also, I kind of wanted to show the gang coming back and really caring for the kids. So I wanted to show like, you know, even though this is not a time or a place where they have access to the kind of mental health treatment that we have access to today. They can't get the kid therapy. They can't give the kid medication beyond like the laudanum that Ada gives the kid to help the kid sleep, you know, but they can sort of surround the kid with their care and their love. And it was important to me to show that aspect. And so to show that like, even though these aren't characters that have access to some of the things that we might have access to. They're still kind of doing their best to take care of their chosen family and they're, they're doing their best with what they have. You mentioned earlier when, when we were talking uh, the the Western idiomatic sense of, of things that you were researching and, and you said we can, we can talk a little bit more about that. And I'm just curious if there is more you want to say about that. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. So when I read from a book that influenced me, I can read from uh, this book called Lieutenant Nunn, which is a memoir of a person named Catalina de Arauso, who in the late 1500s, early 1600s, traveled around South America, actually living as a man, although this person had been assigned female at birth and sort of living really this like swashbuckling existence where they, you know, did some crimes and got in trouble. All, all the while living as a man. And then at a certain point, they were exposed, but then were able to say like, well, um, actually, I was born a woman. Um, I, I'm a woman, like, could I just join a convent, please? And then was able to go back into a convent and um, later even like received special dispensation from the Pope to continue living as a man. So this fascinating story from hundreds and hundreds of years ago of someone being able to totally buck the gender strictures of their time and um, and live a life that they had really self-determined. Um, and that's not like exactly a Western, um, but it is a story of the frontier and a story of colonialism, because this is a person who's born in Spain, you know, in the 1500s and then moved to the quote unquote new world. And you could argue that this person had... Um, a lot more freedom to live in the way that they chose because they were living, you know, as as a basically colonialist in the new world versus in the old world. So again, that's like something I was reading at the time that I was starting to write this book that's not, you know, capital W Western, but it's like very much about these ideas of the frontier in the West that I was interested in. And then when I got into the book and I was really writing, at that point, I did a lot of really directed research about specific aspects of American history. So I read Nell Painter's Exodusters, which is really great in terms of um, charting the history of some Black Americans leaving the South, uh, sort of in the wake of the Civil War. I read a lot about Indigenous history in, um, you know, what, you know, is sometimes called the American West, but obviously it was not the West for, for Indigenous people that already lived there necessarily. I did read histories of outlaws. Um, in particular, I wanted to understand things like, just like, how did they do their crimes? Like, I don't know how to rob a stagecoach or like rob a bank in 1895. So like how those that stuff worked, I was very interested in. And then I also traveled. I went I went to Wyoming and Colorado and I spent I spent some time at there's a working ranch at the site of the whole the old hole in the wall ranch. Um, and I spent a little bit of time there um, walking around and taking a ton of photos. Um, and that really helped me sort of get the setting right and kind of have that visceral sense of place that I felt like was really important. Is that really important for you in your writing to actually stand in the place that you're writing about if, if it's possible? And what does that add for you? 
I mean, I think in this project, it was really important because I think setting is like an incredibly important part of this book, um, probably to some degree more so than any of my other books. I mean, so my first book is set on like a fictional island in the middle of the Pacific. Um, and in that case, you know, I obviously couldn't travel to it because it doesn't exist. It was like instead I ended up basing a lot of that book on places that I had been. So, um, you know, a lot of um a lot of stuff happens in a neighborhood called Little Los Angeles, which is just based on like neighborhoods where I grew up. Um, you know, I, a lot of, um, I, I sort of stole like aspects of like the infrastructure and the sort of like slightly crumbling buildings um, of the island from my actual high school in Los Angeles. Um, you know, so I, I think I do always try to have some grounding in places that I have experience with if it's possible. But I think with this book, it was just really especially important. Like, for example, like in my in my second novel, In the Life and Death of Sophie Stark, you know, setting is important, definitely, but it's not maybe like the main thing. Um, I didn't really travel for that book um, necessarily. Um you know, certainly there are parts of that book where setting is more important and less important. But I think just throughout Outlaw, it's just this like incredibly important thing. So I felt like I really needed to get it right. I found that sometimes it alters the language you use when you're in that place, especially culturally when it's so different. Sure, that makes total sense. Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, there's things that you can kind of only know by going to a place and like the smells of a place can be really evocative, the sounds. Um, one thing I did when I was in Wyoming was um, take a lot of videos so that I could hear later on like the sounds of the insects um because they're you know sort of a very particular sound in summer of like the insects and the grasses there and i mean i think that was particularly evocative to me coming from la where i feel like there's not the same kind of insect oral landscape that there is in other places so i went to school in iowa and i remember like in the summer there just how loud it was um you know with i guess the cicadas and the other insects and then also you know, the lightning bugs in the summer, in the night. Like, we don't have any of that stuff in L.A. Um, there's not that same, or at least I don't remember it from growing up. I don't remember, like, that sense of the air just being, like, thick with bugs and, like, their their weird song. Like, you know, that was very new to me when I first experienced it, and so I wanted to make sure I was getting that right, too. A few things you've said during our discussion kind of about the concept of an outlaw and some of the research you were talking about made me think about how much, and it's true in, in your book, but also maybe in a, in a general sense and partly the West, that that outlaws are partly, and be, but just people who think differently, like that society was so structured that if you were an independent thinker, if you were someone that just couldn't go along with the way of thinking because you had a little bit of difference, even a little bit, then you just couldn't fit in. And there was no place for you except for maybe to be an outlaw and in the way that um, you had to survive, like, like your outlaws and that the West and being set apart from society is so much about a mental space. Does that make sense? You know, to some degree, these ideas go back to the title. And um, this is a book where I actually like struggled with the title a little bit. Um, and I ended up making a big list of, of like possible titles that I sent to my writing group and I had them vote. Um, and I like had my agent vote and Outlawed was kind of the winner. Um, and one thing that I like about it is that it emphasizes that this is sort of something done to the people in this book. Um, you know, they didn't 
necessarily choose this life exactly. Certainly Ada didn't. Like Ada would have probably been happy to live out her days being married and having children, becoming a midwife. Um, you know, that's what she really wanted to do is become a midwife. Um, and then she sort of had outlawed um, thrust upon her a little bit. Like she was literally physically outlawed by her society. Her body was made illegal. Um, and that's sort of what's happened to most of the people in the gang. Um, and so I do think of these as like, they're people, you know, like they, to some degree, they've chosen their life and they are, you know, they are making these choices that I think have moral grades to them. Like people die in this book, you know, like they kill people, they steal from people. Um, they do things to survive that are like, obviously not like ideal, um, but it sort of starts from this place that like their very selfhood was already made illegal. So kind of how could they survive in any other way? One of the things that I thought about a lot early in the book, Ada's mom said to her, if you take away something someone believes in, you have to put something in its place. And she's basically saying like people need an explanation. They're, 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 shallow minded. They can't really think outside of the box. They're not really much on, on new advances in, in thinking in society, whether it has to do with science and, and birth, childbirth or something else. And I felt like that was a driving idea for the book as well. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people have kind of highlighted that quote to me, which is interesting. Um, I definitely think it's a big driving force for Ada in the book, this idea that like, if she can kind of get to the bottom of her own infertility and other people's infertility, and if she can offer like a compelling narrative that then that will be something to compete with the narrative that people have in their minds already, which is that like infertile women are witches or, you know, later on we get to the sort of eugenics portion of the book that they like have bad blood or they have mixed blood or, you know, these sort of racist ideas that come up later. Um, you know, but that if she can, if, if she can find like what's the real narrative and offer that to people in a compelling way, that she can kind of counter what they've been given. And I, I'm i not sure, like, I'm not sure where I would come down personally on that question or where the book finally comes down. Like, that's definitely what Ada believes and, like, what drives her. And I hope, like, for her sake, that, like, in the universe of the book, we kind of see it working. But I also put things in the book that cut against it a little bit, you know, that sort of cut against the idea that, like, Ada can just learn enough to kind of like fix the marginalization that she experiences or the marginalization that other people experience. Like there's times when she kind of like tries to swoop in and like white savior people and it doesn't work and it's problematic. Um, and I wanted that to be in there. I, to some degree, I think the book is about the power of knowledge and like Ada's desire to really like, to really find the real story of what's going on with her body and be able to share that story. And I think those things have like real true power. I mean, like in my other life, right, I'm a journalist and like my whole job is like finding the real story about things and communicating it to people in a way that they can understand. But I think at the same time, I wanted to include in the book, like just questions about that. And, um, you know, I think it's very, it's like a very unsettled question. How do we fight stigma in society or the kind of hatred that Ada experiences? And that so many people experience like in the real life United States still today, like, how do we actually fight that? Like, I think that's a really open question. And I don't know that there's like going to be one strategy or that Ada's one strategy is like the one that will work in every case by any means. But it's the one that she's kind of equipped to pursue. So that's it's the one that the book focuses on to some degree. 
what you see in the book as well is almost like a, a changing understanding of the world happening before your eyes. What I mean by that is that, yes, it's it's the 1800s. Knowledge is coming out slowly. New discoveries are coming out slowly. And when someone comes around with a new way of thinking, it's pretty easy to get converts. And I'm thinking about some of this, the the scenes where you're talking about eugenics and race, where there's a man named Dr. Lively who goes around and he preaches about genetic superiority and that whites are the strong breed and he's against mixed races. And I'm wondering, um, can you talk a little bit about, about Dr. Lively? How, who was Dr. Lively and how did he come into the book for you? I sort of always, I mean, not always, but like at a relatively early point um, in the process of writing the book, I knew that I wanted to kind of bring in, you know, some of the real life ideas that people had had um, about, you know, sort of specifically the ways that um, that racism had factored into Americans' understanding of reproduction. Um, and, you know, I, I started reading a lot about eugenics and thinking about like, well, if this is a society that's so obsessed with childbearing, um, certainly like racism would enter into that and racism would inflect and be inflected by the society's other obsessions and the society's other stigmas, you know, and so I was reading about, um, you know, real life eugenics and sort of the ways in which people came to use science or pseudoscience to justify racism. And then I think the really sort of important like thematic role that Dr. Lively came to play for me in the book is that I didn't want the book to make this like super simple, you know, correlation between religion and hatred or bigotry. Like I didn't want the book to send the message that like, oh, these people, you know, hate infertile people because of their religion. And it's because they're religious people that they ostracize infertile women. And like, if we just got rid of religion in this world, then there would be no stigma you know, because I think that's that's simplistic and it's not true to history where science has also been used to um, to justify stigma and hatred in various ways. So that was sort of to some degree why I wanted to bring Dr. Lively in in the way that I bring him in, where he he cloaks himself in this aura of science and he says he's a doctor and he talks about doing, you know, what he calls science experiment, you know, basically to prove racist conclusions about people of different races having children together. And so in some ways, I wanted to show, you know, sort of the complexity of the justifications that people have used for racial and other kinds of prejudice. Um, and then I also wanted to kind of give a counterpoint to Ada, where Ada is like, you know, really trying hard to use science to more fully understand the world and herself and to like bring that understanding to other people. And at the same time, there are people in her world who are trying to use science to keep others subjugated and to sort of, um, you know, further their own white supremacist ends. So, uh, you know, with him, I really wanted, you know, one to call back to this very real, this very real aspect of American and also European history of eugenics. And then also, you know, just sort of to kind of explore and complicate the ideas the book has about what causes stigma and marginalization and what kind of forces prop those things up. Can you talk about Mothering Monday? Yeah, that was a fun part to write. You know, to some degree, I've always been, um, you know, for, for a really long time, um, obsessed with um, sort of the ideas of festivals and the 
different kinds of things that societies have done to celebrate and to kind of like cast off like the ordinary strictures that they experience. And, you know, like I used to long, long time ago for, I think for my like very first novel that never even got published, I did some research about like medieval festivals and like, you know, how for the harvest, like medieval towns would do these things where they would like a donkey would become the king and wear a crown and like the king would have to like walk around on all fours and like everything would get upended. Um, And you sort of see like the ordinary, like, you know, cultural things that are important to people get ratcheted up to the millionth degree. And so that was sort of the idea behind Mothering Monday, this idea that um, there would be this festival, this celebration around Easter time. I also thought of like, I did think about like how to sort of like, tweak the religion in the book such that like it really focuses on like the infant Jesus as opposed to Jesus as an adult. So, um, you know, but also Easter and the rebirth, um, you know, so Easter becomes this important holiday. I think of like Epiphany as also being an important holiday in the book, but Mothering Monday takes place around Easter time. And it's this time when, um, you know, uh, men would dress up as mothers and women would dress up as men and this sort of, um, you know, and that's really based like very in in very real stuff about medieval festivals and other festivals. The idea of role reversal. So you know, like like the donkey being the king. Um, this is the kind of thing that um, you know, if not that exact thing, then certainly versions of it have parallels throughout history. Um, you know, but I also wanted it to be like a space, another space in the book for sort of gender play and for experimenting with gender presentation. So that's something that the characters in the book do in different ways because they're forced to or because they want to. Um, And on Mothering Monday, it's a time when like not just the hole in the wall gang, but everyone in the society actually, um, you know, has this chance to sort of change the way that they present their gender and present in a different way like really for fun and celebration and joy. And so even though it's like in the context of a very repressive society that is obsessed with motherhood in a really bad way, um, I kind of also wanted to show like, um, here's what a festival in that society looks like. Here's what it looks like when that society does sort of play with its strictures and, you know, how does that affect the characters and how does that affect the atmosphere? Um, And also a lot of the book was influenced by Shakespeare comedies that a a lot of times have this, this element of gender play and gender switching. Um, And so Mothering Monday has that element too, of sort of like, you know, like the players, the actors, like people dressing up in different outfits and having a party. Um, That was also kind of like a thread that was in there for me. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yes. So we talked about, we already talked a little bit about Lieutenant Nunn, um, which is a very fascinating and short book that is the real life memoir of this person, Catalina de Arauso, um, who traveled in the New World um, living as a man. And the book really influenced Outlawed a lot. And I just wanted to read this passage that sort of talks about you know, De Arasso's like early sort of self-determination and the way that that this person's story kind of starts. Okay, and and I think you'll hear some of the parallels with my book too. The nuns were singing the psalms in a mournful tone, and when they got to the first lesson, I went to my aunt and asked to be excused, telling her I was sick. She touched her hand to my forehead and said, go on, go to bed. I left the choir, took up a lamp, and returned to my aunt's cell. I took a pair of scissors and a needle and thread. I took some of the pieces of eight that were lying there and the keys to the convent, and I left. I went opening doors and closing them carefully behind me, 
And when I came to the last one, I shook off my veil and went out into a street I had never seen without any idea which way to turn or where I might be going. I struck out in what direction I cannot say and came upon a chestnut grove just beyond the walls on the outskirts of the convent grounds. There, I holed up for three days, planning and replanning and cutting myself out a suit of clothes. With the blue woolen bodice, I had made a pair of breeches, and with the green petticoat I wore underneath, a doublet and hose. My nun's habit was useless, and I threw it away. I cut my hair and threw it away, and on the third night, wanting to get as far from that place as I possibly could, I set off without knowing where I was going, threading my way down roads and passing villages, until I came to the town of Vittoria, some 20 leagues from San Sebastian, on foot, tired, and having eaten nothing more than the herbs I had found growing by the roadside. I'll stop there. Can you tell me a little more about why you chose that? Um, again, I should say, I mean, this is a real memoir that um, this person wrote at the time, so in the late 1590s. And it's translated from the Spanish. I don't I don't read Spanish very well, if at all. So I've, I've only read the English version that I just read to you. Yeah, so, I mean, this is the part of the story where this person basically decides to live as a man and accomplishes that through making, um, you know, his own suit of clothes and cutting his hair um, and throwing away his nun's habit, um, you know, and striking off into the world as a male person. And it's just this fascinating scene of sort of self-determination, you know, like I hold up in a chestnut grove, I did the stuff, here's what I did. It's very matter of fact. I, I think like a fascinating thing about this book is that it's a, just a really good reminder that, you know, sometimes, especially sort of, um, you know, maybe people who are anti-trans or anti-LGBTQ will portray um, any sort of gender fluidity or um, people identifying as trans or non-binary will portray that as sort of a newfangled thing. And I think this memoir from hundreds of years ago is a really good reminder that that's not true and that, you know, people's gender presentations have always been really varied and the way that they experience their gender has always been really varied. And I think it's also like, I want to be clear that like, if you read this book, if you read Lieutenant Nunn, like Catalina de Arraso isn't necessarily a hero and does really bad things and is also like a true colonizer and has like, you know, sometimes very racist opinions of the people that she encounters or that he encounters. And like, the, you know, I, I sort of struggle with, with de Arraso's pronouns because, um, because he lived sort of openly as different genders at different times. But the passage that I read is a passage that's like almost like at the beginning of a traditional hero quest, right? Like here's here here I am, I'm forming my identity and I'm striking out into the world, um, you know, within the identity that I've really created for myself. And I found that fascinating and like that really, you know, informed the sort of like hero quest elements, I think, of my book. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes. So this is from page 86 of my book and focuses on the kid. The kid's voice changed, taking on the soaring quality I remembered from the first night I'd come to hole in the wall. The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, the kid said. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. I was lost, but the kid's face held my attention and the kid's eyes dancing with excitement. When I met Cassie, the kid said, we had nothing and no one. We cleaved to one another as a husband to his wife. For 378 days, we wandered the Powder River country, looking for a place where we could make a home, where we could live in freedom without fear. And on the 379th day, we came over the red wall and saw this valley spread out before us, the land between two rivers that God promised to Abram. 
I will give unto thee until thy seed unto thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, God said. And I knew that this land was to be ours, an everlasting possession for generations and generations. I'll stop there. Why did you choose that? So I think this passage is a good example of um, you know, sort of like what I came to with the kid after sort of a long process of trying to figure the kid out. And the kid's voice in particular, I had a, I, I had a hard time with. The kid's appearance I thought of early, like I thought about like how the kid would be a very beautiful dresser and dress in this particular way. Um, but like, how does the kid speak? That took me a long time. And the kid's relationship to religion that also took me a long time. And I think it was when I realized that like some of the kid's power as a leader comes like really from the kid's preaching and, um, you know, from the kid's history with the kid's father who's a preacher. And and then I kind of hit upon this like particular style of speech that draws in a lot of these biblical references um, and sort of that uses the tools of preaching to kind of like bring, um, you know, the kids flock, the hole in the wall gang along. It was when I figured that out that I think the kids came, the kids character came together for me a little bit more. So this is like an early passage where, you know, the kid is sort of trying to inspire Ada and trying to inspire Elsie, who's also there, you know, with like really this like covenant story about, you know, the land that the kid is saying was promised to the to the whole mall gang. Where do you write? It's changed a lot. I mean, for most of this book, um, I would write in coffee shops. Um, I, I, I used to try to have physical separation between my journalistic work and my fiction work. So if I was doing my journalistic work in an office or sometimes at home, I would try to do my fiction work in a coffee shop. And I would have this also nice like sort of social element. You know, people are around often also like working on their own creative work found it really pleasant. Obviously, then we had a pandemic. Um, so I remember like the last time I was in a coffee shop um, for work, it was in March of 2020. And I was working on the copy edits for this book. And I remember I'd taken my manuscript and I'd taken like all these bleach wipes and hand sanitizer and everything. And everyone in the coffee shop was just only talking about COVID. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to be in a coffee shop for a really long time. And I still haven't been to one except to like, you know, grab coffee and leave really quickly. So the question of like where I write now is kind of vexed, um, usually in the bedroom, but like kind of anywhere I can get space from my toddler and my other responsibilities. So a lot of different places. I'm really looking forward to the day when I can write in coffee shops again. And when that's safe, that that's like a big, you know, like a big post pandemic goal of mine that I'm, that I'm looking forward to. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? This is another really good question. I do like to take walks. Um, it's always been, you know, always been sort of a way to clear my head. Again, something that was like a little easier before I had a kid. I remember like, I remember a lot of times in grad school having like having times where it's like, oh, I really should get writing done, but it's beautiful. I'm, I'm going to take a walk. I'm like trying to have that trade off between like getting work done and like sort of like hopefully getting inspired for later work. These days I live pretty close to a park and sort of to get away from from writing or the news or anything. I like to take walks there. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, usually to my writing group, sometimes to my agent, but usually to my writing group, we've been, you know, working together as a group on and off for like, for more than a decade now, um, basically since college. And, um, you know, they've been a huge influence on my work and it's, you know, been like a really cool thing to sort of grow up together with, with this like other group of writers. And I just super highly recommend it to other writers. If you can find a group of people to share your work with, it's, it's really been one of the best things. How have you dealt with rejection? 
Usually by working on something else. Sometimes it's hard to be both a novelist and a journalist just because of time. Like it's hard to get everything done. But one good thing is I'm always working on something else. So at times when the fiction work maybe hasn't been going well or I've been getting a lot of rejections, usually I'm also working on my journalism and that has the quality of like being much more granular. So if you write a couple stories a week, you know, you're always kind of finishing something, you're having it out in the world. And that can often be a good thing to focus on when, um, you know, when my fiction is stressing me out for whatever reason. And what is your favorite word? I really struggled with this question. Um, It was hard to think of like what my favorite word has been like globally across time. But what I hit upon is like a word that I'm thinking a lot about now which is the word harrow, Um, you know, so like a verb, um, a verb for harrowing, right? Um, You know, or or a noun, I think, for, um, you know, a type of like farm implement that you would use to harrow, I I mean, fact check me on this, but that you would use to harrow the field. The reason I've been thinking about it so much now is that, you know, at times when the pandemic has been really tough for whatever reason, I've had the feeling of like, like I've been harrowed by this. And again, like I've been in an incredibly privileged position to be able to work from home and all this stuff. So there are ways in which the entire country and world have been harrowed far more than me. But the sense of being being tested and sort of like, you know, actually being like turned over and scored and like made marks on the way that the earth can be turned over and scored and made marks on. That's been the way that I think about sort of the, the like difficulty of this time that it's been harrowing and that also we've been harrowed. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This was great. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Anna North, author of the novel Outlawed. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Hannah Tinty, where we discuss her novel The Good Thief about an orphan in Massachusetts in the 1800s who was tricked into joining a gang. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it to the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Diane Seuss, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Ethan Rutherford. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.